Hello, this is Tim Haig. When I first met Salman Rushdie, the threat to his life was still very real. I was sternly warned not to tell anybody that I was going to interview him and to keep his visit to the studio a secret. Well, last year Salman published his own account of his life living under a fatwa, so there's no need to go into any detail here. And besides, I had just read his novel The Moor's Last Sigh, and I was fairly buzzing with excitement about that. This interview dates from 1995. You you must be bored witless with talking about having to hide and uh, talking about uh, the Iranian fatwa. Yes, I must say, if I never say the word Iran again, it'll be too soon. So, instead of that, let's talk about the book. Um, the first thing that struck me about the book is the, uh, the wordplay, the language, which is a very rushy thing. But um, it, it, it struck me as almost greedy. Do you mm-hmm. accept that? You want to do everything, don't you? You want to have every reference, every... every yes. I think, I think that's quite true. I and mean, I think, in fact, sometimes I use to myself the phrase, um, everything novels. You know, I think, there, I think there are only really two kinds of good novel. There's what I would call a something novel and an everything novel. Now, a something novel is, is, is let's give the, take the example of Jane Austen, where you take one strand of hair from, you know, from the head of the world, and you, and you look at it, and you, and you, draw, you, draw, you, you create the universe, as, as they say, from a grain of sand. I mean, that's, that's one legitimate way of writing. And I think the other way is to try and be encyclopedic, to try and bring in the whole tumult of life, what one of the characters in this novel calls the great swarm of being itself. And um, I've always been that kind of crowded writer, I suppose. And, of course, that's, that's what all, all those cultural references about, isn't it? Because, uh, obviously, you're more, your, your central character is the product of different cultures, mm-hmm. as you are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and apart from fracturing all the words, apart from making all the puns, what you've done is you've, you've drawn in um, Indian films and, and, and Hollywood uh, cartoons and, and English literature, and, and that's a very conscious thing. You, you yeah. want to do everything. I want, I want to show... Uh, the world as fully as I can, and that means bringing in a lot, a lot of what one would call low culture as well as high, um, east as well, eastern as well as western, uh, and a lot of it arises out of the fact that in India, uh, anyway, there is a relationship to language, uh, not just to English but to Indian languages as well, which is playful. You know, people do enjoy playing with language. Uh, it just it, people delight conversationally um, in linguistic play. Uh, and I grew up enjoying that kind of that kind of talk. Indians are great talkers. You know, they're very gabby. You go to to coffee houses in India, and the, and the hubbub of people delightedly arguing and disputing with each other is constant. Uh, it is one of the great recreations of India. Talk. And one, one of the really peculiar things to to people like me is the way that you've uh, you've sort of reverbified all the verbs, mm-hmm. or at least your, your char- you haven't, but your characters do. In, mm-hmm. Instead of uh, you should change your mind, it's got, always got to be you've got to changeify your mind. Yes, I, well, that's particularly one family in this novel that does that, and, and and that's not necessarily something that everybody in India says. But what I wanted to suggest was that in families sometimes uh, little family verbal ticks develop and and those get inherited from generation to generation so particular bits of family play you know become if you like they become a way in which the family describes itself by making certain jokes by saying certain things in certain ways by having family phrases by having uh, those kind of locutions so in in this novel the women particularly in this in this family uh, have this little this little tick where they put uh, they put these 
extra endings on the ends of verbs. They don't say sleep, they say sleepo. They don't say eat, they say eatify. It's a sort of reverse um, gerund, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's just a bit of nonsense, really. Um, and it arises out of things that I've heard people use constructions like that just for fun. Well, of course, if it, if it is anything at all, if it is a something novel at all, as opposed to an everything novel, it's a dynastic novel. It's, mm -hmm. it's four generations, culminating in the, in the more of the title. Um, who um, is, is living at double speed? He, he, he gestated in four and a half months, and he, he's, go, he's you know, hit the age of about 70 by yeah. 35. And I wondered what that was about. Uh, what, what were you getting at? Well, I wanted the book in general to have a sense of great urgency about it, you know, a sense of of running out of time. You know, uh, I, I wanted the book, was one of the reasons why the book is written in such a compressed and condensed way. And there's an awful lot of plot in 450 pages. It could easily have been 900. It pages. could have been nine novels. Yes, it could. And I wanted, I, I, first of all, I always feel that one of the ways of reflecting the kind of superabundance of India is to try and put nine novels into one, you know, uh, or enough material for nine novels into one. But I also felt myself a kind of sense of great urgency, and, and I wanted to communicate th that as intensely and passionately as I could, um, of maybe we don't have as much time as we think, you know, that, that, that sort of feeling. I think it's a feeling that many of us now have. We have a sense of, of history running away with us, of things, of things moving so fast that we can't hang on to their coattails you know, of, of whoever the, whoever's driving the carriage, you know, that the, maybe the horse is, is, is run or is bolted. Um, uh, I think that's a, that's a sense that we all have about living at this moment in time, you know, and, and, and what I wanted, then I thought to myself, supposing we make that literally true, you know, supposing we'd have a character of, of whom that metaphor, in whom that metaphor becomes literal, and so he actually is living faster than he should, you know, that the time for him moves too fast that he that he that, so he has this sense of their of only having half a life and therefore having no time to waste that that that, that was a way of communicating the more general urgency that i felt we can't get away from politics uh, uh, completely because, of course, all, all your books are, are suffused with politics. They, it, politics functions also as a background, but also very much as a foreground. And I, I thought it, the metaphor for that in, in, in The Moors Last Side is the way that Aurora uh, flirts with politics, and in the sense that she's uh, flirting or at least uh, having a relationship with Pandit Nehru. Might be. She might be. Well, she might be, yes. <laughs> you, do, you, do, you do sort of hint at that. Yeah. But po politics is, is uh, in, enormously important in your books. Yes, I, I've always thought that we can't leave it out anymore. That's to say, to write a, a, a novel simply about private life in which the public sphere does not impinge uh, is not true to any of our life experience. You know, that's to say, uh, these days, decisions made in rooms that we're not present in affect our daily lives every day. You know, if the pound crashes, we get fired. Um, if the mortgage rate goes, goes up, we have to sell our house. You know, we are constantly affected in the most intimate ways by the public sphere. And so I've always thought that, that one should write not political novels, let's say not novels about politics and politicians, but novels in which the public sphere is a, an intrinsic part of life in the same way as falling in love or, or sex or death or, or, or food you know, are part, or work are parts of life, so is that sphere. And I've tried to find the points at which the private lives of people, the private lives of the characters in the novel, intersect with the public life of the nation and how those two things um, affect each other. 
the uh, there's been a bit of a row f about uh, one of the characters about uh, the the cartoonist mm -hmm. who is now uh, a Hindu uh, uh, political leader, mm -hmm. and uh, there has been some some uh, complaints from the the man who is caricatured therein. Yeah. Now the the, the crude uh, critics have suggested that you, you were trying to redress the balance and, uh, and 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 offend everybody just so that uh, <laughs> the Muslims would get off your back. But that that's not true no, I at don't, all, is it? Well, no, of course not. I mean, I'm simply trying to write about what I see. And, and it is simply the case in India that the growth of um, very extremist, uh, quite violent uh, communalist politics uh, of all sorts, but primarily Hindu nationalism, uh, is a very dangerous force, in my view, uh, uh, very dangerous for the democratic structure of the country. And, of course, extremist nationalisms are not unique to India, and I think there are resonances uh, right here in, in England and Europe uh, the group, uh, the, with, the growth, uh, with the growth of similar extreme nationalist groups. I mean, I, it's, it's in, inescapable that the novel does deal with a Hindu communalist party and its leader, and since it's set in Bombay, and Bombay is currently run uh, by a Hindu communalist party with a leader, uh, that there are obviously echoes between the two. But uh, all I would say is that the real-life leader, Bal Thakre, uh, is not the only model for the character of Raman Fielding in my novel. Uh, there are many other models. I mean, for instance, it was a quite, when I was last in India, I met a lot of political leaders and community leaders when I was traveling around making a documentary about the country. And it was quite, there were quite other political leaders who were the models for some aspects of the book. I mean, the, 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 there was a, a, a guy I met in a quite different town to Bombay who sat in his garden with a lap full of money that his followers had given, given, uh, given him and absently, while he talked to me, hand-rolled each individual note as if he was rolling a cigarette. Now, this little device uh, has nothing to do with Mr. Thackeray. And I, what I'd say is this, in, in Midnight's Children, when I wished to uh, offer a critique of what Mrs. Gandhi had done during the period of emergency rule, uh, I had a character in the novel called Indira Gandhi. And if in this novel I had wished to simply make a critique of Bal Thackeray, there would have been a character in the novel called Bal Thackeray. Um, the fact that he isn't called that, that he's called Raman Fielding, uh, is because I'm trying to make a broader point than just one party, one person. I'm trying to say that this is a, is, this is a, f a national phenomenon in India, the growth of such parties and the, and the emergence of such figures, and not only in India. You know, I think one, in my mind, one of the most important models for the character of Raman Fielding, the Indian uh, extremist politician, was the Russian leader, Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Um, a lot of what I read about Jirinovsky and his behavior uh, gave me ideas which I've transposed into this Indian character. So while it is absolutely true, and I don't deny, that the novel passionately dissents from the kind of extremist politics represented by the Shiv Sena, uh, Mr. Thackeray would be wrong to believe himself to be the only model. I should also say that he did begin his life as a very, very uh, biting political satirist, a cartoonist himself. So he's, he knows very well the form of political satire. He's been very good over his life at dishing it out. And I you know, would simply say that he ought not to be th so thin-skinned when it comes his way. He ought to be able to take it if he can give it. Yeah. There's, uh, I, I wonder if I could ask you to read a passage of Certainly. The Moor's Last Sigh. I, I've selected one uh, which I think is uh, appropriate and really rather good. And um, if you wouldn't mind. Thanks. Uh, Yes, this is uh, about uh, the narrator, the, the more having this, uh, this problem we talked about. I'll say it again. From the moment of my conception, like a visitor from another dim dimension, another timeline, 
I have aged twice as rapidly as the old earth and everything and everyone thereupon. Four and a half months from conception to birth, how could my two-timing evolution have given my mother anything but the most difficult of pregnancies? As I see in fancy's vision the accelerated swelling of her womb, it resembles nothing so much as a movie special effect, as if under the influence of some twice-pushed genetic button, her biochemical pixels had gone loco and begun to morph her protesting body so violently that the speeded-up outward effects of my gestation actually became visible to the naked eye. Premature, post-mature is much more like it. Four and a half months in the wet and slimy felt much too long to me. From the beginning, from before the beginning, I knew I had no time to waste. Passing from lost waters towards necessary air, jammed solid in Aurora's lower passages by my Susu's rather military decision to salute the moment by standing at attention, I decided to let people know about the urgent nature of my problem and unleashed a mighty bovine groan. Aurora, hearing my first sound emerging from inside her body, and getting a sense, too, of the immense size of what was waiting to be born, was at once appalled and impressed, but not naturally lost for words. After our eeny, meeny, miny, she gasped at the frightened ecclesiastical midwife, who was looking as if she'd heard a hound from hell, I think, sister, here comes Moo. From Moo to Moor, from first groan to last sigh, on such hooks hang my tails. Well, that, that's true, isn't it? Every time you, you, you come across a possible pun, you, you, you use it. Um, and and I, the one that struck me is that he's got a deformed hand. And uh, he says that uh, fate, he says something like, uh, fate dealt me a bad hand. That's right. I wondered if, if the idea of the hand came first or that little phrase was well, prompted. Phrase. Was, was that the hook on which you thought, oh, yes, that would work? No, I mean, sometimes it does happen that you, that, that you think of an idea just in terms of a, a piece of language. You know, in, uh, in, in that case, it wasn't so. I was quite pleased to find the phrase afterwards. Uh, the idea of the, the hand uh, was very important in this novel because, first of all, he is the child of a great artist, uh, a difficult person to be a child of for the best of times, and, and even more difficult when you find that in your case, the hand of the maker, so to speak, is, is completely dysfunctional, because, it, it's, because it's, a, it's from birth a ruined hand. So initially, this, this thing, this broken hand, is a kind of poignant aspect of him. It's a part of his, if you like, his tragedy, um, that he is incapacitated in the middle of a, 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 of a family of such brilliant makers. But however, one of the things I've tried to suggest in this novel, which is about secrets in our lives that lie beneath the apparent surfaces of things, that there is a secret in his hand, you know, and that he eventually, when he's expelled from the paradise of his family, he learns this secret. And the secret is that this hand is, in fact, not a weak thing, but actually it's an extremely powerful, potent thing, because it contains within itself the capacity for great violence. It's, it, it packs a hell of a punch. But it, it's powerful destructively rather than creatively. That's right. He discovers a violence in him, which is a destructive violence, but, uh, but if you like, a destructive violence of equal size to the creative genius of his mother. And he embraces it. And he embraces, that's to say, this dark truth about himself. And I wanted in the novel to suggest, I hope the novel has a very bright an enjoyable surface. I hope that it, it, it's, it's really, it has a lot of fun and, and comedy on the surface. But I, but I wanted to suggest that beneath that fun and comedy, there are some darknesses in ourselves. There are some darknesses in the society that the book describes and that the book tries to eventually penetrate to those. And the darkness about more is the violence latent in his hand. Oh, and also the darkness of his father, which he learns about towards the end of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, there the father and the mother, of course, are the two giant figures in his life. The, the mother, bright and brilliant and creative. The father, if you like, 
overtly self-effacing, but, be but beneath that rather effaced exterior, uh, a, a kind of giant of his own sort, a very dark giant, extremely, who becomes more and more and more uh, powerful and also more and more and more corrupt as the book goes on. And, and, and poor old Moore has to deal with both these parents, and, and, um, and it's not surprising that he's a bit of a mess. Salman, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.